For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 706, welcome to today's Entrepreneur presented by FL Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar along with FL Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. Good evening, Josh. Hello, Dan. And this evening on the program, we're going to talk eyewear, but some very special eyewear, um, hand-painted eyewear from Ronit First. We'll have Suzanne Sandel on the program, and uh, this is a really interesting brand. Uh, I can't wait for a chat with Suzanne because it came out of uh, out of really of artistic inspiration uh, out of Israel. So we'll, we'll get to that story in a just a few minutes, but first, as usual, a bit of the news of the day. First, real quick, I mean, there's not really much to say about uh, Danier. Uh, you know, again, another An- another, retailer. another one bites the dust. Yeah, it's just it's just such a shame. Um, you know, uh, obviously a big Canadian connection there. It's it's been been around for for a long time. Um, I don't know thoughts on the. We, we, it seems like this is a weekly. You know who's who's uh, who's uh, in it, trouble in it, retail. It's kind of like you know the, the we have the twiddle this week in data loss. Well, you know <laughs> it's like this week in retail loss. Yeah. Like what, what stores are falling next? And uh, kind of going back to the 2008 too big to fail. Uh, I don't think anybody is too big to fail. I, I think it's. Uh, I think if if you if you grow too much and you lose control of your costs and and you it takes so long. You know, you can't turn on a dime. You have all these entrepreneurs running their businesses that if something is going the wrong direction, they stop, they turn. When you're sitting with however many stores they're sitting with, 90 or some odd stores or whatever, and you're and you're expanding, I think it's just difficult. And if you don't see it coming, you don't steer the ship or turn the start turning the ship in the right direction a little sooner, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to miss that that iceberg. Meanwhile, I was reading last week that Amazon is opening more more retail locations. Uh, it's interesting how how people, in some some instances, it people seem to think it could work, and others not well, so much. I I think it's you know, and and we've heard it before, Dan. It's the online, online, online. But if you're building a brand, do people attach more to it if they can see, feel, hear, touch? And, you know, just weekly we've seen, you know, with Frank and Oak as an example, where they were strictly online, but then they started to open stores say, you know what, this is this is something that I, I, I can really see, feel, hear, touch uh, the product that they're selling. And that attaches me that much more. It's it's like, you know, Fifth Avenue, Fifth Avenue, you know, the, the rent, Fifth Avenue in New York City, the rents are absolutely astronomical, but yet you see your store on Fifth Avenue and it's it's an absolute branding brilliance. Costs an absolute fortune, but if you're on Fifth Avenue, it's branding. So it's I think taking these online and saying, "Hey, let's we we got to add to it because online in and of itself only reaches certain people, reaches a lot of people, but it only reaches certain people from a branding aspect." Hmm. Uh, back here in Montreal, uh, some interesting uh, moves in the online gaming industry. Poker Stars uh, is owned by Amaya, which is a, mm-hmm. a Montreal company. Um, and four employees are joining the CEO, David Bazov, in uh, trying to buy uh, Amaya. And, and I think the, the story that I want to, or the part of the story I want to emphasize here is that, you know, there's always a lot of companies looking to sell. They're looking for that, you know, that third party they're coming to buy. Sometimes you don't have to look beyond your own backyard. Sometimes these management buyouts, these employees, these key employees that are maybe looking to have skin in the game or more skin in the game and really looking to work or go beyond the employee status, you might find them right underneath your nose. These management buyouts, look to your key employees, see if they have any entrepreneurial spirit. Sometimes they have a little money, sometimes you don't. Sometimes they pay it out with future profits. I've seen that a number of times where you say, you know what, guys, 
You can take over the business. You'll pay me out of the future profits because I believe in it. We'll stay involved. We'll work together. And this company could be yours in several years after, you know, after we share the, the spoils going forward. So a lot of people that are looking to sell out from third parties, maybe it's time to look at the people right that you work with right next to you. So a lot of employees, especially in, in sales or management positions, of course, are expected to bring in clients. At what point do you, do, you, do you look at that situation and say, well, okay, now you're bringing in enough business to really be a, a partner? I, I don't think it's just about bringing in business, and I, I think it depends on what you're selling. If you're selling services and if you have a revolving door, uh, you know, then, then yes, it's probably a good chunk of it is being able to continue that revolving door to continue to bring in business to have a value and a worth. If it is a, a, a product, you know, that or, or a different business that you don't need to necessarily sell it, but you need to be a good operator, you need a, a good vision, you need to, you know, really, uh, whether it's pulling up your socks, whether it's controlling costs, whether it's finding the right team around you, uh, you know, you don't have to be stuck in the trees to see the forest from 35,000 feet and point it in the right direction. Uh, moving on now, I, I'd like to get to uh, to the vinyl revival story. It's so interesting how things. I mean, Polaroid is coming back too. All these things that that retro, Dan, retro. Yeah, I mean, is do do you think these are fads or or is there something about vinyl that is just worth reviving? Um, it's a good question. It's probably a, a, a personal opinion taste. Uh, I don't know. I think it's more of a fad than anything else. Uh, I do believe that there there are some, you know, retro appeal to it there's no question about it if if you if you look at the stats behind it 2015 sold far more vinyl records than 2000 or lps than 2014 that baffles my mind that being said the quality of the vinyl today is far superior than the quality of the vinyl 10 20 30 40 years ago so the sound is that much better now all you got to do is make sure you have the equipment to play it on so i, I think there's definitely a market for it but if those people that are making the machines or making the vinyl, if they think that they're going to be in that business for the next 10 years, I'm not so sure. I wonder if there's something else going on in that, you know, we're so we're digitizing all forms of entertainment these days. Maybe people just want to hold on to something. Maybe they do. But as we, you know, space is at a premium, physical space. Okay, maybe not in northern Quebec where it costs a lot, but if you're looking at uh, towns and cities and you're looking, look at the condos in Montreal. The, the new ones that are getting built are tiny. Uh, there's, there's not really a ton of space for people to collect uh, all these, call it chachkas, call it little <laughs> things, uh, around them. And, and I'm not so sure. I think it's great to feel in touch. It's great, you know, when you have to go out and buy things, feel in touch. You want to go out and buy clothing, you want to feel in touch. To go out and buy music uh, that you want to feel in touch, it's great. It's, it might be a great look, great retro look if it fits your decor. I just don't know if it's there for the long run. There are condos the size of this studio that are going for half a million dollars in Montreal. So yeah, maybe not not too not a lot of room for vinyl necessarily. Dan, Dan are you lying on your bed right now in the studio? <laughs> Pretty much. We're doing this from our condo actually. <laughs> um, General Motors doubling down on uh, on connected cars. Connectivity. Uh, you know, Dan, we we talk constantly about the mobile world and everybody doing everything on their phones. And uh, the reality is, is we are connected all the time. Whether we like it or not, we are connected all the time. Whether you're an infant or whether you are 80 years old, somehow, some way, some shape, you are connected. Now, that's a good thing and a bad thing. 
it's a maybe a bad thing from a privacy a, a standpoint you know if people can find you and and you know you're driving your car and they're they they can really kind of check out where you are all the time maybe not so good however if the car is because one of the one of the items they speak in the article is the connectivity between cars and if the cars can talk to each other and there's a car that's slowing down or an accident that's you know, 50 meters, 100 meters, a few car lengths ahead, and they can talk to each other, you might be able to have a better reaction time and avoid that accident. Mm -hmm. So there are definite pros and cons to it. I think over time, the the pros will outweigh the cons, but there is a privacy aspect that is definitely going to come into play. Finally, um, I was kind of disappointed with the Super Bowl ads this year. The The crop was, was not too impressive, I think. Um, but some were pretty funny. Uh, do you, Does a funny ad that gets you attention for 30 seconds in a Super Bowl, does that translate into retaining anything about your brand or, or maybe developing customers over the long term, you think? Uh, I, I think? I think laughter, humor is something that people will talk about for quite a long time. I mean, the, you know, it's, it's an emotion, you know? So if you can evoke an emotion, then the emotion can last in a group of friends. It can uh, it may not go viral necessarily, but it's something that will get spoken about. But you got to have something attached to it. Uh, I personally found, I, Dan, I found personally this this year that they were less intelligent than usual, that they were less witty than usual, that sometimes they relied on a celebrity to to push their product without having, you know, that je ne sais quoi attached to it. Uh, and I think just using celebrities, I mean, commercials are expensive enough at $5 million for 30 seconds. Um, use celebrity, it's that much more. So I think I think they have to add creativity to it. Coming up on this uh, today's entrepreneur, we'll have a uh, Suzanne Sandel of Renit First Eyewear, and we'll talk about uh, about that the hand painted uh, eyewear that uh, that Suzanne is uh, is selling here in Canada. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 718 on today's Entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people. Dan Delmar and FL Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you. And this evening, we're chatting with Suzanne Sandel of Ronit First Eyewear. Suzanne, welcome to CJD. Nice being here. Thanks so much for having me. So the story behind the brand is is really interesting. Um, you're the Canadian representative for for, for Ronit First. Uh, can you tell us about how, how you got involved in the eyewear company and, and how it started in Israel? Because it's kind of a neat story. Sure. Well, I was in a far-removed industry. I worked with architects and designers for most of my professional career. And at one of the trade shows that I had visited back, I'd say, three years ago, I was wearing a new frame I had purchased in Israel uh, the summer earlier. And uh, most of my representatives, my customers, and people just walking by our booth would stop and ask me where I picked up these frames because they were so vibrant and colorful. Uh, so I thought about it and I, I took off the glasses many a times and shared the name of the designer with all the people questioning me. And uh, on my flight back to Montreal from New York. I was traveling with a designer who's one of our customers. I took off the frames and I said, you know, Tanya, I should really be selling these frames. She looked at me and she said, Suzanne, I would buy them. And at that very moment, uh-huh. Your aha moment. There we go. <laughs> Uh, the very next morning, I got up, made myself coffee, did my follow-up with my reps, and dropped a quick note to Israel, which is where the frames are manufactured from. Renit first is Israeli. 
And I had mentioned to her uh, my personal experience wearing the frames and how they enhanced my style and how many people had asked me about them. And though I was in a much removed business, that I would be very interested in discussing the possibilities of being their exclusive distributor in Canada if, in fact, they didn't have somebody representing them here. As I got on my sweatpants and took my dog out for a walk, my phone notified me that I heard back from Israel. So I was thrilled, and within two hours, we were on a Skype call. Uh, Fifteen minutes into the conversation, I was so intrigued and pleased with the banter that I was having with the president of the company that I suggested, I almost dared them, well, I guess I did, I said, how about I fly to Israel, I'll pay for my trip if you cover my expenses while I'm there. We could spend four to five days working together, and if, in fact, you feel I can broaden your market here in Canada, I would very much like to sign a contract with you and reinvent myself as your new Canadian exclusive distributor. And then I took a deep breath, and he said, when can you be here? <laughs> wow. And then, and then you got on a plane and went there. I did. So what was their story? I mean, they, they, didn't, they weren't always in this business. What intrigued you about their story to, to continue this path? Artistic. They are so incredibly artistic. Renit first studied uh, throughout Europe ceramics. She is a ceramicist. She's very, very well known. And in the early 80s, she started a business and she was designing dinnerware, hand painting dinnerware. And she was supplying five-star hotels throughout the Mediterranean. And she had built a business that employed close to, I would think, 80 employees. Uh, Unfortunately, China came in with free trade, and within a few short weeks, she had to close her company, which was very, very sad for her because she was so passionate about what she does or what she did. Uh, Fast forward a few years later, sitting at her kitchen table on one Saturday morning, she pulled up her clear frames, pulled out some brushes, and got artistic over breakfast and coffee. That evening, she put on the frames and went out downtown Tel Aviv, and uh, people were stopping her at every corner, asking her, where are those frames from? Where did you get those frames? Finally, the fourth or fifth inquiry, her husband looks at her and says, honey, we have a new business. And that was in 2001. Now, that, now that, that is absolutely a tremendous story. You know, how you kind of fall into these things. First of all, they fell into this because you don't always plan these, these great ideas. And then, of course, you fell into this. But you were in a completely, completely different aspect. You were in a different business altogether. You were a rep somewhere else. And you left your pretty good paying job to take this big risk. And when we come back from the break, we'll kind of figure out why you did that and where you are, where you're headed towards today. Suzanne Sandel of Runit First Eyewear this evening on Today's Entrepreneur. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. This evening on Today's Entrepreneur, we're joined by Suzanne Sandel of Ronit First Eyewear. And Josh, a great example of, uh, of turning lemons into lemonade with Ronit First. I mean, seeing the, uh, the onslaught from, from China and saying, well, maybe we should go more the artistic route and sell something that's a bit more original. And, and just to go to show you entrepreneurs and you never know where it's coming from, uh, you know, Suzanne, what were you doing before this? What was your job before this? I worked with architects and designers. I was national sales manager of an architectural lighting company. 
Uh, prior to that, I was sales manager for a furniture company. And prior to that, I had a sales agency representing different manufacturers and um, working with hotels and high-end properties across Canada. So my, my main focus was interior design and architecture, but it was fashion-based. Now, but what, what compels you to say, you know what, I've been, you know, working my whole life. I'm, I'm well, well, well paid, well remunerated. Um, I'm going to take this chance. I'm going to take this leap, start this business um, with no, I don't know what kind of business experience you had. Um, but what was, what was that defining moment? And were you scared? <laughs> I was, but I'm a strong believer in when opportunity comes your way, seize it. And if you don't, you could miss the boat. So I was very pleased in my former industry. I loved what I did. But after 15, 20 years of working within the same in industry, I was very, very ready for a challenge, something new, something exciting, and something that I could create from inception. I mean, it was so new here to Canada that I thought, what a great challenge and what a great opportunity for me to reinvent myself at this stage of my life. I embraced it. And reinventing yourself, you know, Dan, we've heard a lot of reinventing of product, reinventing of services, reinventing yourself, you know, entrepreneurs, you're kind of born with it, but not everybody, uh, I guess, evokes that out of themselves over time. And, uh, and Suzanne did. So you're, you're getting into this business. What kind of homework do you do? Like, you know, do you do your due diligence? How did you, you know, how did you the contract dealing with uh, a company that's overseas dealing with an Israeli company that's overseas that I'm sure uh, they they have their their opinionated moments uh, I'll leave it at that uh, how what kind of homework did you do and how was that process I was very fortunate I have some wonderful friends who have tremendous experience in legalities so I did speak with them but prior to speaking with Israel and committing to flying out and and taking that journey I spoke to a number of retailers with my glasses and um, they all encouraged me and felt that it would be an inspiration to the industry as we are the only hand-painted frame in the world. So they were very enthused about taking this product line on. So I felt confident that I would have a strong customer base to start out with. Now you invested yourself with this. In other words, you, you didn't use any external financing. Pretty much. I went straight into my savings, took a deep <laughs> breath, and said, kiddo, this is it. Now, you're, you're, was it a long process finalizing a contract with an overseas company, with Israeli company? You know, I've often said you have to pick your fights. There were a few gray areas in the contract, but I bit the bullet, and I felt that there were certain things that I would accept, even though initially they got the hair on the back of my neck standing up <laughs> a little bit. Uh, in dealing with Israel, listen, you have to be very broad-minded. You have to be a visionary. And at the end of the day, a contract is only as good as the people who sign it. Did it take a long time from, from the time that you went to Israel? to meet Ronit and her husband till the time you actually signed a contract. How long was that? I traveled on the 7th of December. Uh, I was gone for five days. The contract was signed on the 22nd of January. That's that's pretty quick. So now you have this contract. What's the first thing you do? You're, you're ready. You're, you're now the exclusive distributor in Canada. What is the very first thing you do? Place your first order, <laughs> take a deep breath, and go into your savings. How in the world do you know what to order? 
Uh, you, again, have to speak to the people who you're connected with. You have to trust some of the people you've met along your journey in terms of customers. And if you trust your gut and your own personal taste, you create the line, the initial line. There are over 4,000 variations of hand-painted frames. So in order to bring them all in at the same time would cost more than I was willing to invest. So it's all trial and error. And of course, you know, our customer base in BC aren't particularly going to be enamored with what our customers in Moncton, New mm. Brunswick will like. So it's all about finding your footing, taking chances, and really being true and authentic to what you're doing. Did you do a lot of research? Did you speak with a lot of retailers? I wanted to keep it pretty close to um, the chest. So I did speak to five or six of the larger retailers in Ontario and Quebec. I wanted to be very cautious because when I was coming out with this line, I wanted to create a splash. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur, presented by FL Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. And Josh, this evening, uh, we're talking to Suzanne Sandel of Runit First Eyewear. And so we, we have this new product brought in from Israel. It's it's as unique as can be. It's hand-painted, hand mm -hmm. really. Uh, uh, Suzanne is wearing them right now. I mean, the frames are blue. The sides is, I think, one is zebra print and the other one is pink. So really unique product. Now comes the tricky part, the marketing. How, how do we sell this incredible, unique product? And, and the, the marketing, the branding, people got to know that it exists. I mean, it's, it's great. It might be very popular uh, in, in Israel, of course, uh, now, uh, maybe in, in the United States because there's a distributor there too. But you're in Canada. You're, you're bringing it here. Uh, they were sold a little bit in Canada before you, you came into the picture, right? Yes, that's right. We do uh, several trade shows, and our U.S. distributor welcomed several of the Canadian retailers who were intrigued and fascinated by the line and purchased them. So when I took on the product line, uh, we had 15 accounts existing in Canada. Today we have over 70. Mm -hmm. uh, we have representatives working for us. Uh, but when we did start, it was a little challenging, developing market awareness. Uh, the first thing I did was reach out to the Globe and Mail, the Montreal Gazette, uh, various uh, fashion magazines, and they they took to us. They liked us. They was they, it was it just the story that they liked? They were they were intrigued. It was it was a unique product. Like what was the hook? What were you able to kind of get them in with, or just your charm? I, well, you're very <laughs> sweet. Thank you. Uh, it was the storyline, but when they saw the product, they forgot all about the storyline because the products were so bright and colorful. And joyful. These frames make people happy. It's the most wonderful thing for me to sell because I've always believed in the products I've promoted and the people I've worked with. But in coming back from Israel after working with these people and seeing how they labored and how the artists would sing and smile as they'd spend their day in, day out painting frames, I felt so inspired. So when I shared this story with, you know, the media, uh, they loved it and they asked for JPEGs and samples. And the next thing I knew we were featured in the Globe and Mail, Eva Fried featured us as one of her top 10 must-haves for summer with our sunglasses. And then it started to spread and it was wonderful. But I must say, 
that there were a few customers that believed in me so much that even though we were just beginning, they gave us a wonderful opportunity. And they know who they are. And I just want to take this moment to thank them because we are going to do whatever we can to support you and continue to and make you proud. Thank you. Uh, excellent. Now, you're, you're getting these new customers. You, you, this is a, a new business for you. Uh, first of all, how do you find them? Do you reach out? Because you said you have rep- representatives across Canada. You're, you're based in Montreal. Canada is a very wide country. Uh, so you have to reach out as much as possible. How did you find your reps? Uh, I did trade shows. I advertised in trade magazines. And I spoke to a lot of our stores, our retailers, because if they're happy with the service they're getting and they like the people they're working with, certainly they would they would support them. And when I met these people, it was very significant to me to know that our potential representatives were as passionate about our product as I am. Now, you also, you know, we come back to branding. You want to get as many people to know it as possible. I presume you're using the power of the internet as well to get people to recognize and know Ronit first. Thanks, Josh. You know, I have my cousins and friends constantly asking me, how do I know this person and how am I friends with that person? The truth is, everybody on Facebook is my friend, but I do use social media to promote my business. I do like and share and win a pair contests. I'm constantly cross-marketing with my retailers. I have a professional photographer, hi, Jen, taking pictures at different store locations, and we're constantly working on developing all types of support from our stores, from our customers. We want everyone to feel like they're part of our first family. Now, the competition, you know, do you have competition? Uh, You know what? We are a niche product. We are the only hand-painted frame in the world. Our tagline is when art meets the eye. I look at the other manufacturers and I'm in awe of what they've done. Tom Ford is one of my favorites. I love Oakley. I've worn Ray-Bans most of my life. But we can't really call them competition because they are manufactured made. They're machine made. We are artistic pieces of art. I mean, we are frames that are hand painted. So was it difficult to find a price point? You know, when when you have a unique product... um, where how do you choose what price it is okay i mean i know there's certain markup there's certain you can work backwards and you want to make a certain profit at the end of the day after some expenses uh, and the market will only bear so much so how did you choose your price point was it already kind of given to you as guidance or do you kind of make it make it on your the own the us price points is what we use to gauge our own price points plus what we were paying from israel you know, FOB Israel. Once we landed it, we did the math, we figured out what we would have to sell it at to make it profitable. And now, of course, with the US dollar being so inflated, well, let me tell you, in the last two years, we've lost about 35% of our profit margin. So as everybody else is doing, we are increasing our prices slightly, just slightly, but we have to keep up with the times and make sure that we can cover all the other expenses of running a viable business. Well, the reality is if you're comparing it to U.S. prices and you convert it, I mean, that that's also going up. So there is some comparison that is that is helping your way. No question. There's semblance and we're all being affected. Each and every business that works with U.S. products or in U.S. currency has been affected, certainly. Do... Do, do trade shows work? 
Uh, you know what? It's very interesting you should ask that because I was just speaking to a friend of mine last week who's very actively involved in this business and someone who you've interviewed. And uh, it's very important. It's very significant to be at trade shows, especially because it's the presence. It's not necessarily to sell product. It's to support the business. It's support the product. And it's to let your customers know that you care enough to be there. Have you noticed any of the the big manufacturers uh, uh, sort of taking taking a lead from Ronit first and developing more colorful eyewear after after this? I'm very pleased you asked that question because there are a lot of companies out there that are using some of our styles and color combinations, not necessarily precisely as we are, but we are leaders. Israel are visionaries. Um, I'm very proud to see that there's a lot of products coming up that are bursting in color and that are striped and, and just really live and breathe color. So more and more people are asking for colorful frames. Again, you know, I'm humbled. I really am because this line is so incredibly artistic and joyful that it really can't be compared to anything else. Now, when you <clears throat> when you are deciding on which which frames to buy, and I mean you you've been doing this for a few years now, what have you learned from an inventory management aspect, and what you kind of bring in, what you hold, what you're able to sell? What what's the lesson that you've learned in the last few years on that? Well, we follow the lead of our leaders. Uh, we have one customer who has many, many stores, and we like to repeat what he's ordered because we want to make sure we always have stock for him. A lot of our customers like to repeat what they've had because they've seen it as successful. I try and encourage them to think out of the box and take a chance. This whole line is about chance. The designer took a chance. I took a chance and I want our customers to take a chance. Plus, when you shake it up a bit and you order different products, then everybody gets to wear an exclusive frame, which is really what we would, very we are inspired to do. And, and it's very innovative and very unique and uh, absolutely encourage people to check it out because they do make you smile, Dan. You know, you, you look at the colorful uh, around the eyes and, and it does make you smile. Thank you very much, Suzanne. And... Every entrepreneur, you know, they're entering business, they're going into a lot of contracts. You, you know, you don't have to use the bank. Some people do. But there's a lot of liability out there for owners of companies and directors. And when we come back after the break, Dan, we're going to explore director's liability, what you really got to protect your behind about, what you got to know when you're signing on in some of these aspects. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 7.48 on today's Entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and F.L. Fulolando's Josh Miller. We'll have Suzanne Sandel's uh, one piece of advice for today's Entrepreneur on the way from really first eyewear. Uh, but first, Patrick Sullivan is here, trustee at F.L. Welcome back, Patrick. Nice to be here. And Josh, uh, some of the complications of, uh, of partnerships? Well, I, I think it's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of bright entrepreneurs out there, but there's a lot of bright entrepreneurs that don't always recognize what they're getting into, that don't always recognize what they're signing, that don't always realize potential implications, uh, dollar implications, liability implications uh, of their business and ongoing business. So, And Patrick has been kind of dealing with this issue uh, for many, many years. Uh, so not on his own personal, but in, in advising uh, clients and, and, and the like. Uh, so kind of turn to you, Patrick, and and you know maybe what are the first couple of items or few items that come to mind when when somebody says director's liability and what's out there that I got to be concerned about? 
the, the first thing that comes to my mind is when you're starting up a business and obviously you're going to be trying, or in many cases you will open accounts with suppliers. And uh, I've seen so many of these where suppliers will have these standard forms that entrepreneurs will fill out, give whatever, uh, you know, the, where they're going to be uh, buying, what they're going to be buying, the amounts that are they're going to be exposed to. But there's always this little fine print uh, that sometimes they don't read and they just sign it. And they realize when, obviously, when things go south, that they have personally guaranteed the account to that supplier. That's one area where we see it often. And another area is obviously signing a lease mm -hmm. uh, that you, uh, you know, you're a young entrepreneur. You don't necessarily want to invest the money to have your lawyers look at it. Uh, and, uh, you know, normally people come out with these standard leases that are 50 pages long. And at the end of the day, you sign, and again, you've just guaranteed the landlord uh, on the lease. And when things go south and things go sour, it's same, too late same because story again. they have the right to come back and say, hey, buddy, uh, you kind of signed personally. Uh, you're Keep, on the hook for another four years. There you go. So, you know, typically that's where you see the most young entrepreneurs get caught. Directors' liability, they exist. Government liabilities uh, I mean, let it be for payroll, let it be for deductions at source, GST, QST. The governments are very, very close. They're monitoring things, and they, they don't hesitate one second to come after directors when uh, sit insolvency situations arise. Uh, and, they're, and, they're, and they're because... They're so connected, and we we're talking about connectivity right at the beginning. Uh, because everything is is at their fingertips, they really they're not waiting like they used to. I mean, there were a number of years ago where it took them a while to to kind of find things and react. Much fa I mean, other than the fact that the, the the government is broke, that's I won't say it's besides the point. It's probably actually the point. Uh, they're they're coming and they're they're coming after directors more frequently and more readily. Absolutely. They, they, I mean, we have the wage protection program for uh, wage earners in insolvency situations where the government will guarantee a certain amount uh, to the employees uh, to the tune of $2,000 per head for unpaid salaries and wages for six months prior to the event of bankruptcy or receivership. Uh, but at the end of the day, what that means is that, yes, the employees will receive a certain amount of money, but if the assets aren't there because they have a first-ranking security above and beyond banks on the assets, the assets are just not there to cover that. They turn around and they come after directors uh, for the whole amount. Same story if the $2,000 isn't enough to cover the salaries and you know vacations that are owed to the employees. Well, the difference, the employees can come after directors. So... You know, these are all items that when you start or you go into business, you have to really monitor closely and make sure that you're on top of the game, especially, you know, when things start to be harder and the business is not going as well. That's where, you and, know, yeah, you, you really have to identify those those problems. And there and, and there's no doubt you're starting a business, you know, cash flow is number one priority. So where do I save to, you know, kind of spend my money on my purchases, keep my suppliers happy? Well, you know, don't skimp on certain aspects, you know, government liabilities that they can come after you uh, very quickly on. Uh, when we come back after the break, we'll continue chatting with, with Patrick. And we'll talk about, again, a little more fine print because, again, with cash flow and you need lines of credit, well, you're signing a lot of agreements with banks. What are you not reading? What 
do you think you're signing when you're really maybe signing something else? Suzanne Sandel's one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur also on the way. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. We're joined by uh, Suzanne Zendel over Neat First Eyewear this evening. Her one piece of advice for today's entrepreneurs on the way. But first, Patrick Sullivan, trustee at FL, uh, talking about various business partnerships and how uh, sometimes new entrepreneurs, Josh, uh, can get into contracts, not quite know the liabilities that are involved, not quite know what they're on the hook for. And and certainly, Dan, there's a lot of new businesses that they, they need financing. They, they, they get into these deals, whether it's with bank or third parties, uh, and there's a lot of standard agreements and a lot of standard lines, uh, and maybe we'll we'll talk with the banks because it's it's most uh, most prominent. But Patrick, what do you see as as the entrepreneurs not understanding or not realizing what they're signing in in bank agreements and lines of credit? Well, yeah, yeah. let's t- take a step back. Bankers are professional sales reps; they're selling money, okay? And uh, you know they will they will explain to you exactly the transaction, what you're going to be getting. But then comes the paperwork. And if you don't take the time to read the paperwork and read the fine print, all the different little clauses that are put in there, uh, obviously when, and, and when the business is running into financial difficulties, that's where you get caught. Because then they will apply to the letter every single little fine print that's in there. Are there some popular ones that you, that you see often that uh, don't Popular realize? ones is uh, cross-aging on receivables. You know, the famous, if you have a receivable uh, that has over 10% of the 90-day column, we scrap the whole line. So, you know, if, uh, for example, you're dealing with uh, a $100,000 account, well, unfortunately, they will remove the whole hundred thousand if, in the ninety-day column, you exceed ten percent, so you exceed ten grand. This is unfortunately not necessarily applied, but I guarantee you, when the business is running into financial problems, they definitely do apply it. Now, with personal guarantees, because a lot of banks, you know, depending on the business and the financial viability, there's a lot of personal guarantees that get signed. But do they ever get lifted? Do you know? Do banks kind of hang on to them and and not really advise their customers? Hey, we're we're moving on to another agreement, and maybe it's different. But they don't they don't give this mail of a. They don't kind of release you. They just kind of stay silent. They they never do. Uh, in, in order, what, what the, it's sort of like add-ons. So you've guaranteed a loan, uh, the original loan to the tune of maybe a hundred grand, and then you needed some more money, and then you signed again, and all of a sudden, oh, you signed in for another fifty. It didn't remove the first hundred. Now you're at a hundred and fifty guarantee, and this goes on until such time as the entrepreneur really turns around and says, "Hey guys, whoa, I I don't guarantee this anymore." And then you see what happens. I mean, uh, but but it definitely has to come from the entrepreneur. It won't come from the bank. For them, it's just an add-on. So if you're looking at a business that's been around for a long, long time, well, surprise, surprise, a 10, 20-year-old business that you know runs into financial problems, and then all of a sudden the shareholders realize, hey, we've signed all of these documents on, a, on an ongoing basis, and then they realize, oh, I have a $100,000 guarantee, but by the time it's over, it's a half a million dollar guarantee. 
that's where surprises come in. Keep your eyes open, read what you read what you sign, uh, and if you don't know what you don't know, well then find somebody that does. Exactly. Thanks very much Patrick and Pleasure. as we as we approach the last uh, moment of our show as we do every week, we'll turn we'll turn we'll turn to our guest Suzanne Sandel of Ronit first and ask you Suzanne, what would be your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur? Well, I'm going to quote Steve Jobs. And he once said, the only way to do great work is to love what you do. And I happen to love what I do. And I want to thank you very much for having me this evening. And it's been a wonderful experience. And working with Renit first has just been the beginning of a wonderful journey for me. I'm looking forward to being in this industry for many years to come. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much, Suzanne. Uh, Dan, I guess my takeaways, I have a couple of them. One is... Suzanne took an absolute leap of faith. She went from one industry, she left the good paying job, and she knew that this was her passion and she needed to follow it. And uh, I commend her on that risk taking that, that, that all entrepreneurs, some way, shape, or form, take risk. And she absolutely took one. And the other one is, gee, absolutely infectious the way she talks about her product. And if everybody could talk half as much with that, with that, that, that love, that uh, joie de vie about their product, uh, they'll all do super well. So thanks very much. Those are my takeaways. Suzanne Sindel of Renit First Eyewear. Thanks for stopping by this evening. And thanks to Patrick Sullivan from FL as well. And back next week at 7 p.m. here, Monday nights, for today's Entrepreneur on CJD 800. The exchange is next. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.